Where is our Bible study? That's a good question. <clears throat> I'm wondering. <coughs> excuse me. I'm wondering where the pavilion is. I don't see anybody but you in the meeting online or in person. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's another one. There's somebody else. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, we should have been. We should be. See, you know, we should be seeing uh, the the pavilion with everybody in it. Yeah, that's it. Maybe they're well, having problems well, with the I think they're having problems with blue jeans. Mm. I don't hear anybody either. I hear you guys. No, the, we're we're not in yet. We're not. Oh, I mean, we're, we're, they haven't opened it up to us yet. Oh. So I'm going to email him and see if maybe he'll respond to me. I'm going to email the bishop. Okay. I'll stand by. You have a nice house, Rhonda. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Not as cluttered as ours. Oh well, you you, you haven't seen it yeah. all. <laughs> we don't even have a Christmas tree up yet. I I have it up, but I don't have it completely decorated yet. And that the the big one in the living room is is not decorated yet. Well, there's people, there's, there's constant, I, I don't yeah, see their faces. Joining, huh? There's people joining, but yeah, uh, I, I, I think they must be having trouble at their end. I wonder why I can see you, but I don't, but I see their names at the lower left-hand corner, but I don't see any that, other faces. Yeah, they, they switched off their video. Oh, there they are. There. <laughs> Good morning, Constance. Can you hear us? I don't think she can hear us. She has her mic turned off. Are you guys seeing the rest of the group? No, I'm not yet. The bishop I and I okay. let him know that we're waiting. I, I don't see who I see. Huh? I, see. I, I can't hear you either. I told the bishop I that there's five you. of us waiting. <laughs> I mean, email. That's I didn't call him. I just emailed him. Well, he'll he'll wonder if something's wrong because it's unusual for nobody to 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 no, come. No, right, online. exactly. Yeah, he yeah. should know, and he's probably just not able to connect. Well, I think I'm going to leave and come back in a few minutes and see if anything's up. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks for emailing him. I think she heard me. <laughs> now I don't see Constance anymore either. No, I see her. Oh, there uh, she goes again. Uh, oh, there he is. Okay, we have it. Sorry, I put it on the wrong channel on accident. <laughs> we just felt like we'd subject you to some advent discipline of waiting. <laughs> Are you prepared? We're here now. Did you prepare your heart? For the word of God. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, good to see you guys. We were looking at TV 
and it was in my in my channel because Rachel set it up for John. I said, "Well, no one's coming. Can you not hear?" I can, can hear you. Raise your hand if you can hear. Okay. Can you hear Rhonda? Good. Okay. All right. So we, we were sitting here, and Angel actually turned around and said something about it. And I was thinking, yeah, it's on my channel. I thought, oh, we're not on my channel. So we got it on John's channel. That's why we delayed with you guys. So hey, we've already prayed, but so we're going to jump into John 14. And um, a lot of good stuff in the chapter, actually. So we just read in, let's jump in and read and talk about it. So let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, it's very important when Jesus says things like, let not your heart be troubled, because, you know, what, what he means and how we understand it, because a lot of people would say, you know, cheer up, don't worry about it. And that's not what Jesus is saying, because when people, a lot of times people tell you to cheer up, who, you know, have no connection to faith or anything. They're just trying to make you feel good. But the good they want you to feel isn't really rooted in any reality that gives confidence. So when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, he means you guys are going to be okay because you are connected to me and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So even though you're going to have some difficulties, it's it literally is... In, in the scheme of, of the unfolding of history, okay, you're, going, you're not going to be lost, cast away, uh, abandoned. And whereas that's different from just sort of positive thinking advice or someone might say, hey, cheer up. He's like, well, you know, so and I've always, this is something about the gospel that's not always understood in our time because people mistake a positive subjective feeling for something related to the gospel. So, or to put it another way, they will they will they will feel like if they feel good, that's the goal of the gospel. So we're here to we have a Bible study. Hey, hey, how you feeling? Well, good. Okay, good. We did what we're supposed to do, and you know, while being rooted in the truth should lead us to more positive feelings. It is not necessarily so. And the reason for your heart to be not troubled is because you're connected to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is with you. And if you're feeling subjectively bad right now, you have confidence that this is a passing thing that God will work through. So this whole idea of of the encouragement Jesus gives is not just a cheer up. Is rooted in a reality. Well, it's also, but something about that too, about this also, because the hope is rooted in the reality of God's promise and what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. We we can we can embrace temporal sadness. So I'm sad about something today or sad about something in my life or a loss. You don't have to skip over it. It's perfectly fine because that um, hope, even a sense of, of joy can coexist with 
a sadness of the season or the need to mourn through something to get to the other side of it. And I think a lot of the bad spirituality of our time is rooted in because faith is connected with good feelings, the, the conclusion that if you don't feel good, there's something wrong with your faith. So people always need to cheer you up. And I want to say, no, I'm, I'm feeling down today. and Don't try to take that from me. I'm going to sit and I'm entitled to my sadness. I'm not despairing. I know Jesus is with me in it. I know I can work through it. But that's healthy emotionality. And the other part leads to very healthy, like, so you feel sad, but cheer up. So, okay, I shove what I really feel over here and put on a face for you. And it actually ends up being being very damaging to our prayer because some people are taught that they shouldn't feel a certain way. And so they have trouble in prayer because how they really feel is never allowed in because they've been told they should. So their religion is about, you know, saying the right things or, or trying to cheer up, and that gets tiring and I think it's why a lot of people may say the heck with it. I don't want to go to church anymore because I don't want to. I don't want to act like I don't feel this way. Which is why church, in its healthy environment, should mirror a little bit more of a, of a sort of recovery group, where we start with honesty. I'm such and such, and here's where I am. And and to realize that if we're honest about where we are, that's where we're coming to Christ to meet us in the in the in the real place of of where it, it, it hurts or needs some comfort or encouragement, and then prayer becomes real. But if we if we push away how we really feel in order to make it it is false and that just gets tiring unless you're you know committed to just that kind unless you're anxiously committed to staying out all your life, which some people are. Anxiously committed to keeping your feel, your real feelings away because oh. you just want to. You, you're so concerned to make the surface thing feel good that you just. Our culture full of that. Yeah, yeah. That's going. You know, and so when somebody sees sadness, they don't know how to deal with it. It's like you know how to just sit. But here's the thing about ministry: is until you can sit in your own sadness and loneliness with Christ, without having to anxiously get rid of it. You can't do that with anyone else. So when people are always anxiously trying to it's usually because they're not yet prepared to sit alone. So anyway, let not let not your heart be troubled, because you believe in God, believe also me. It's almost like so they're they're Jewish, they believe in God, that's a, a state. Now he's putting himself on the same level, believe in me the same way. And and that's what will result in in the kind of peace we'll be talking about. Now we have one of the most misunderstood and mis, mis, uh, verses ever. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, it doesn't really mean mansions. Um, in my father's house are many, um, literally, rooms or dwelling places. And the point this is often misunderstood to, to mean that, well, there are many mansions, so depending on how good you did in life, that's how big your house is going to be. And that is so modern Western and so not anything biblical, it's, it's ludicrous. What he's, the, the emphasis is on many, which is there's going to be a place for you. Not that you're ordering, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> You know, and, and because the individualism that I have my mansion and you have your mansion is is 
there's going to be a much more communal reality there. Um, so the word there is not, and it actually comes into English because it was like, I was reading what was, is like from the French manse or space or room, came into English as mansions, and then really in our context it has the sense of some giant place, but that's not what it means. And it says, um, if, if it were not so, I would have told you. you know, I'm, I'm, so you're believing in me, and I'm telling you, I'm going, you're, there's, there's a place for you where I'm going. I'm going to get it ready for you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, there's something, one guy, I, I um, one Bible study, is, I don't have any independent research on it, but it was kind of a cool picture that he said in the ancient world that um, when a man engaged himself to a woman, that he would go ask you know, for a hand and they get engaged. Then he'd go back to his father's house and build on extra space so they could live in it. And then he'd come back and get her to bring her to the space that, that, that he had prepared. And that image fits kind of well here, and especially because John does pick up the bridegroom imagery. So he's betrothed himself to us now. And, we, and now he's preparing a place, and when he comes, we'll enter fully into the marriage, the wedding feast, which is a very Johannine imagery. So we understand where he's gone. They want to understand in that context, he's going to build a house right now. And house, we understand metaphorically, again, on dimensions of, of dwelling that we don't really understand now, but nonetheless. If this is on, on, there'll be a place, there'll be plenty of room. There's that, uh, it makes come to mind if you, uh, it's like a camp song, Christian camp song, In My Father's House. But this big, big house, lots and lots of rooms. <laughs> yeah. It kind of picks up on that a little bit. Have you ever, have you ever heard that? It's, you yeah. know. We should probably never been to Christian camp, which could, could be a mixed bag. But there's that. Yeah, yeah, all those, all those things. So, there, where I'm, you may be also. And verse four, he says, "And where I go, you know, and the way you know." Thomas said to him, "Here's Saint Thomas, who celebrated on Tuesday, who seems to be a." A concrete guy, not given to abstract thinking. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it's interesting, um, these three terms, the way, the truth, the life, um, each has its own meaning and resonance, um, and to some degree that before Jesus is the way, he, he is first the truth in the sense that God is true and faithful. Jesus, the Son of God, reveals the truth about God, so he is the truth. If you want to see the truth about God, you look 
at um, Jesus, and so he's the truth. He reveals to us the truth about the Father. He is the life because um, apart from him, there's death. That the condition of sin is separation from God, life cut off from God, and now he's come to restore us to that life and, and to give life. To have a further image of this in the image of the vine, Later on in John, next chapter, I'm the vine, you're the, you're the branches. He's the life. We draw our life from him. Now, the way is the way to that life. And I think it's interesting that that term, the way, comes up in um, Acts a lot. One of the earliest things the Christians were called is people who belong to the way. And But if we think about it as a pathway um, looked looked at in the larger framework of, of the New Testament, um, the way, therefore, is through the cross to the resurrection. And this is why in our own um, Christian initiation, baptism, we're baptized into his death. We're buried with him through baptism into death. That as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we should walk in newness of life. By baptism, by entering into the, the, the union with him in his death, through repentance and confession and death to sin, and then receiving the gift of the Spirit, coming back to life, that is the way to get there. That's the way you go. So it's not a, 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 a particularly just an abstract, oh yeah, I just believe in Jesus, that's the way. There's an actual path. And following Jesus, therefore, on the way, through the cross to the resurrection, is the way to get to that there. The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That is, sin separates fallen humanity from the Father. Jesus has come to die for sin and to reconcile all humanity to the Father. And apart from that atoning and redeeming and, and life-giving work, you, we, nobody can get there. It's, it's an impenetrable barrier. It's a, a dimension you can't enter into in, in fallen human form. And this is something that... Because um, a lot of times I think, for this reason, judgment is wrongly understood. Because, and John, I think John's gospel brings this out most clearly, is that um, a lot of times people think, well, judgment will happen. Well, so Jesus comes, or there's this judgment, and and God brings everyone in front of him, and he like, yeah, you did pretty good, you're in. Uh, you didn't do so good, you're out. The reality of judgment, and John's gospel brings this out very clearly, is you either have life or you don't have life. So if um, St. John says in his first epistle um, uh, that um, he who has the Son of God has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So we live in Christ now. When he comes, what we have is a revelation of the true nature of things. And therefore, fallen humanity that has apparent life is revealed not to be life at all. And it's not so much that God says, you're out of here. It's that 
they've not entered into the way to life and the only other place to be is is you can't you can't get there you can't so it's a I think it's it's a a sort of almost a scientific reality in the same way that you couldn't go we couldn't go into space without a space suit and oxygen supply you can't just go there so you can't just go into without receiving the light and the idea is the point of this life of preaching the gospel is this is offering people the life there comes a time when it's too late to get that life you can't enter into it anymore and judgment day reveals that it's not this sort of arbitrary thumbs up thumbs down on you know what you may or may not have done it's a revelation of the true nature of your relationship with God we have been forgiven and and the and the confirmation of that is that we live in that relationship with God in Christ through the spirit in our lives of prayer and in our community of the church and where we, we this life is sustained and nurtured as we wait for its completion. The further we get away from that place of, of, of life, the less confident we have that is present. Okay, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So knowing Jesus is knowing the Father. Because he and his Father, as he said in a previous chapter, are one. And he is, the, as St. Paul says, the image of the invisible God. So now, since you know Jesus, you also know the Father. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. They're all kind of obtuse. But in fairness, you know, this is pretty new and strange and different stuff to be bringing out. Um, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, I've been showing you the Father my whole life and ministry with you. Which highlights something about the incarnation that we always want the revelation of God to be spectacular, but it's given in Jesus in a very ordinary, he's just living with them and the way he's living and being is is in is is where God is seen. And I I feel like that's a big Christmas lesson for us to learn because we're so conditioned by our culture to think that for it to mean something it has to be spectacular or showy or whatever. And we're more likely to to come to know Christ in the in the more humble places of life. Mirrored in the Christmas story where nobody's there, you know, except for the Holy Family, and he's, he's and, and it, the story is made known to shepherds in a field somewhere. Not every shepherd, certain shepherds, very obscure. So the, the way the revelation comes is, is is to so it takes a certain humility of mind and understanding to understand how God is around us all the time in Christ, 
Moroy's looking for a sign or show us something. That seems like what Philip is doing, you know. Okay, show us the Father. Give us a little kaboom. And, and, and that's not the point. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? <clears throat> the words that I speak to you, <clears throat> excuse me, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. It's interesting here because um, there's a meditation here. Uh, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. So we've seen the Father through Jesus. Um, it also, if we if we expand this out, because this has become a basis for the theology of the body of Christ, where through the gift of the Spirit we become members of the body of Christ, and then in a certain way, since we are members of his body, we represent Christ, and the more in tune we are in our prayer to the will of God, the more the reality of God and Christ we manifested to others through us. So... But that doesn't mean we're not individuals, so the Son is distinct from the Father. One of the heresies, historically, there's a heresy called a modalism, which teaches that you, know, you have one God, just one God, but sometimes he shows up as the Father, and sometimes he shows up as the, as the Son, and sometimes he shows up as the Spirit, but there's no real distinction. It's just like a mask you're putting on which is a heresy, because the truth is, the, the as we see in the old Trinitarian things, the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit, but together they are one. So the mystery of togetherness, the way we're in harmony and individuality, the way that our unique gifts, temperaments, ministries manifest the unity is the tension here. So Jesus doesn't mean to say here that there's no difference at all between me and the Father, but that I reflect, as the Son reflects the image of the Father, I, I'm the true, I reflect the true picture. And so when we're trying to be Christ-like, we're trying to also carry on that iconography in an in a authentic way. Carol, uh, for those online, had talked about about the idea of someone explained the Trinity about being, you know, you're someone's son, you're someone's father, but you're also you. The the more standard Western way of understanding this, which comes from Saint Augustine, is in terms of relationship, and it, it's that um, you can't have love with without more than one person. So, a solitary God, if you ask, for example, why God created the world in a, in a kind of just philosophical way, a standard answer for people when they say, why God created the world, well, you didn't want to be all alone. You know, I mean, you're sitting here as God, it's great, we gotta, you know, you're, but, but a Trinitarian God, because we believe that 
uh, you know, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be, that in the beginning, the God that Genesis expresses within the beginning, Genesis 1, is articulated out as we talked about in John 1, where we started. In the beginning, we expect to hear God, but we hear was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, but the Word that was with God was not God. So there was God and His Word that is manifested then in the form of the Son. And then the articulation of the Spirit uh, that St. Augustine really is, I think, responsible for is the idea that the Spirit is the love of Father for Son and Son for Father that then overflows outward into creative activity. Because when you have a loving relationship, um, it's naturally creative. And so the love of God is not selfish. In other words, they could say, we've got this, like, you could say, like, an unhealthy relationship on earth would be one where, hey, we're really in love. Let's just sneak off to the mountain and, and you know, we're not going to be children, not doing anything like that. We're just going to enjoy our thing for ourselves. Whereas in the relationship of love, there's there's many ways it, 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 it flows here, goes out, and bears fruit in the form of children who are witnesses of the love. And it's hopefully they go out and do things in the world that contribute to the world so that so the love gives something. And so the reason we believe the motivation for creation is that the love of God is naturally creative. If you really have love, you can't hold on to it. And this is really the the um, the motive for authentic evangelism. It's not that we're afraid we're not going to make enough converts and God's going to be mad at us or um, or, you know, not enough people in church, need more people to pay the bills, but but that we experience the love of God in our lives in a way that takes the emptiness we have in sin and fills us with healing. And and that's something we want to, hey, that that's let me tell you, let me and, and even I'll tell you if I've had something done for me that I've experienced as grace. The natural response, I just want to, I'll naturally be led to give freely to someone else. And our growth in the faith is a purification of that, a growth in our experience of healing in Christ of the Spirit that leads to a growth in our motive of love. Because our giving in a natural state of emptiness often masks a need. I'm doing something for you, but what I really want you is to respond or I want something from you, but the more we grow, the more I can give a legitimate gift like God gave his son. He certainly is calling people to respond, but the gift is given just as a gift, whether people respond or not. There's a, any, any other questions about the, the, the Trinity, but I just want to make sure when he's, we don't want to have a too close of identification here. They're one they're united, but, the, but, but there's a distinction also. Verse 11 continues on. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves, which are witness to the fact that the Father is in me, that the Son is doing the works of the Father that he sees. 
these bear witnesses, he said, before in John's gospel. And verse 12 is an interesting verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now, how can someone do greater works than Jesus? There's a reason. It's historical. It has to do with timing. But Yes, that's right. So, um, so, so you remember when Jesus talked about John the Baptist, he said... Uh, he said, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. So that when through the cross and resurrection and then the coming of the Spirit, the kingdom of God becomes present, the works done in the kingdom are greater works than the, the works done before the advent of the kingdom. So that's what he means. Holy Spirit, exactly, exactly. It's the coming of, is when the Spirit comes, because, and this is something we really just have to understand in the language of the New Testament, that's what makes it the new creation. And the work of the new creation is greater than work of the old creation, because the new creation is just like the old creation. God spoke, and the Spirit moved over the waters, and there was a bunch of stuff. So now, in, in Jesus, God spoke, speaks again, and he's going to send the Spirit, moves over the waters of baptism and the waters of, and so he, all the works that pertain to the new creation are greater works than, than, than the works of the old creation. So it's a time issue. And of course, it's not even just also that, um, no, we're doing bigger things than Jesus because we are the body of Christ. There's not a distinction. So just as Jesus will say, I am manifesting the Father, we would say, well, whatever greater works we do, we would say we are representing Jesus because part of the logic of what Jesus is doing going away is, is practical and geometrical. Jesus can bear witness in one city at a time, in one place at a time, but, but through the outpouring of the Spirit and, and, the body, and, and, the, and the creation of the body of Christ, Jesus can be everywhere through his people. And then we get into prayer here, so talk to us to move forward to that. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Pretty profound. Source of many pow much power, a lot of heresy. Um, but obviously, in my name means within the will of God. To some degree, that puts a boundary on all the things I personally want that I'm going to I'm asking in the name of Jesus, you know, give me a lot of money, or 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 even in the name of Jesus, uh, I, I demand some kind of healing. 
that may come that may be the will of God, but sometimes it's not the will of God to heal in that space because we know that death has not been done away. So it's it's clarified in 1 John. Again, here's John's Gospel, the epistle of 1 John and Revelation clearly come from the same tradition. And in 1 John 5, he says, um, uh, if we, we know... We know if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the petitions we desire. So we, but, but that said, then there's a great power within the will of God. And we know our power to pray within the will of God will always be bounded by, you know, that Garden of Gethsemane thing we'll get to, which is, Father, if it be possible, let this not happen. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. But we also know that when that happens, it'll be like Jesus, because if the Father had given him what he asked, which was not the Father's will, the world would not be saved. And sometimes we want to be saved from certain trials that actually God is going to do something through the trial to accomplish something greater, although we don't experience it and understand it at the time but faith would understand and look for what God is doing in and through. So there's the promise of prayer. Then verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Now this seems to be a conditional phrase. If you love me, keep my commandments. And then I'll send you uh, another helper. Now, we just had last chapter a new commandment, which was what? If you love one another as I have loved you. So we love God. That love is manifested in love for the brethren. And when that love is practiced, the spirit comes. I think it's a pattern. It's like, it's not just like one time, you know, we keep commandments, we get this one dose, but that there's an ongoing reality that as we, as we, as we seek to love, as we are loved, the spirit, uh, and, and this is like that Monday, Thursday, um, chant where charity and love are found. God is ever, is ever there, uh, at the foot washing. It's a beautiful, Chant required us if you've never been. I encourage you to come. But that's the idea where charity and love are found when there's when there's the practice of love, then, then love kind of multiplies. But if we refuse to love, if we refuse to love another as he has loved us, then the, the promises of prayer, the presence of the Spirit diminishes and, and it's not the same thing. He expects us to do what he told us to do, because he did it for us, he expects us to do it for him. And it's a circular, it's a circular, I, I will say here, it's a circular and progressive reality that we can only love because we have been loved. But then as we love in the spirit, the spirit comes in greater measure. So I think that's 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 what I think about here.
So it doesn't mean like, if you love me, keep my commandments, like I'm going to obey all the rules. He's really talking about love here. Um, and this is um, brought out most clearly in Revelation in the letter to the church in Ephesus, where the condemnation, which is the church that John hung out in, where um, um, the, the message from the risen Christ is, after saying all the good things they've done, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love, which I think can be argued as love for the brethren, because they can't be separated. You can't say you love God and have that love not be manifested in love for others. And a lot of people try to do that. You know, I love God, and I have all this private devotion, and it, it doesn't work. It's not a love for people. It's not a substitute of, for love for God. So sometimes that's the worldly error that we're, you know, with all these charitable things, we're going to forget about God because he's all, you're talking about him, it's divisive, but hey, we just love each other. But then love has no foundation or context or aim. It's just, what are we doing? So, I'll pray the Father. Give me another helper. Now, this word is important to unpack. So I think it's um, it's not adequately translated here. It'd be a word. The Greek word is paraclete to all this passage, and it means someone who comes alongside. And the logic of this passage is that Jesus is going to go away. But he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send the, the Spirit to be with them. And there's a, uh, a sense in which the Spirit here, the helper idea or comforter, which comes in the King James tradition, feels like it's, it's merely a source of interior comfort, where the, the, the role here of the paraclete is larger than that. I don't say that it doesn't mean there's not. And comfort would be something more like strength, but there's also a sense of, advocacy that where and and so the idea that Jesus will intercede in heaven but the spirit who is with us will will connect us with that reality and advocate for us actually I I um, there's a passage in Romans that that made me think of this as I was um, he says uh, in Romans 826 likewise the spirit also helps us in our weaknesses we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So that there's, so that there's, as Jesus was doing for them with things they didn't even know, so the Spirit is doing in us things we don't even know. And sometimes that's why the best prayer is just help and, and, um, Helper is not like a horrible translation, but it's not adequate to capture all that the word paraclete means. So we'll pray the Father, if we, if we keep the commandment, commandment of love, we'll pray the Father, he'll give us another helper, he may abide with us forever. The spirit of truth. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The spirit of truth will guide us into truth. Give us the spirit of truth, and the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, interesting things there to highlight. The world cannot receive him. Why not? Because the world does not repent, does not turn away from its sin and turn towards Jesus. Therefore, the Spirit can't come. There's no, that's, there's not a way for the Spirit to come to those who, and the way to think about this is you might say, you really want to help someone in your life who's recalcitrant and, um, you know, they're off doing their thing and you have a heart and you want them to, 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 to change, but they never do. So they can't receive it. They can't receive love from you without turning away from the, the discipline thing they're doing. So the world cannot receive the love of God until it turns away from its rebellion against God. It's not that God doesn't love the world, but that's why we talk, get more into the spirit, what the spirit does in subsequent chapters. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that reality of, of, of um, how, the, how the spirit proceeds. May I ask a question? Yeah. Um, it is, uh, if, if an adult is converted, or I don't know if I should say anybody or only adults, I don't know. I'm just taking a wild stab at it. Stab at it. Does, what comes first, generally? Is it repentance or faith? Well, it, it's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know that I, I, I think they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. I think that, though, you could, here's how I, I, I you know, there, there, um, there's an argument that, that faith provokes repentance. So, for example, um, if, I, if I see Jesus and I, I'm compelled to believe, as I begin to believe, the light begins to shine and I kind of go, oh, yeah. So, for example, we had in John's Gospel, the Samaritan woman at the well, they have a little conversation, you know, and, Lord, I, 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 I want this water, give it to me. Yeah, go get your husband. Now we're going to talk about repentance, about how your life will have to change. So, and whereas I think that, um, and I would say something here that, The reason I think some encounter with Jesus is necessary for complete repentance is just on the repentance side, a lot of people already feel very guilty to the point of self-loathing, and that's why suicide is a growing reality. And so it's possible to feel bad about who you are and what you're doing without having any hope. So that's not repentance. We're going to see at the end of the gospel that Judas, can represent John or not, but Judas commits suicide. He doesn't repent. He becomes despairing. So true repentance has to have some connection to Jesus where I say, yes, I want this. And now, because I want this thing that you're offering me, I'm willing to get rid of all this other stuff that's not enough. Yes, Connie? There's a scripture, isn't there a scripture that says the love of God uh, leads us to repentance? And and just recently reading Augustine, he talks about how God's love is the first mover of all things. I don't, I don't, I can't think right, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I can't think right on hand of that, of that, of that scripture. Yeah, I don't know where the scripture is, but I, 
of Lovecraft Council squeezing if, 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 if one die for all, then all die. That's in Corinthians. Um, but so I, I guess to answer Lynn's question, just in a general way, they're, they're so connected. Because if you try to, I just believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to look at what's wrong in my life. You know, that, that, that's, you know, or, or uh, I'm just going to be, feel bad about myself without the positive relational connection with Jesus. You really need, which is why grace, I think, is a, paradoxical mix of conviction and embrace with a slight favoring of the embrace that leads to the conviction. Because only if you're being held by the Father can you endure the confrontation. That depends on personality. But some people just need their butts kicked. A lot of this has to do with background personality type. But... But I think on an ongoing way, if if my experience of faith is that when I come back to my prayer and experience some sense of God's presence, that's when I go, oh, yeah, that's not going to work. But I've never really understood why John's baptism was a baptism of repentance that I always couldn't wrap my mind around why all these thousands of people are coming to the desert repenting when they didn't have Jesus as the object of their faith yet. Well, they did, though. They did, though, because John is very clearly um, the preparatory prophet, preparing the way before the coming of the great and terrible day will send Elijah. So when they were repenting, they were repenting in order to be ready for Jesus, even if they didn't particularly know him yet. It wasn't just be sorry and feel bad about yourself. It's that God is coming, and in order to, 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 to receive him, you have to repent. So John didn't, and John completed his ministry with his baptism where he said, okay, here's the guy you're getting ready for. And even John's gospel, he said, now go, go follow him. A lot of John's disciples were Jesus' disciples. A lot of John's disciples, yeah, became Jesus' disciples, but, but not all of them. There was a little So the other thing about that verse 17 is that the Spirit now dwells with you and will be in you. So he's around them now, but won't indwell them until after the cross and resurrection. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. You won't be fatherless. A little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Because the Spirit will give them eyes to see. So, he'll, and he'll reveal himself to people through the Spirit. So, this comes out in the resurrection narratives. He goes away, the world doesn't see him. He appears to Mary Magdalene. He, she doesn't see him until she, he, he calls her, you know, Mary. But now you'll see me because he calls his sheep by name and allows us to see him. But apart from that revelatory connection, the world doesn't see him. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you and me, and I in you. So he's expanding the communion of the Godhead to include us. We are baptized into Christ, 
by virtue of being baptized into Christ, we are incorporated into the Holy Trinity. So, he and the Father, we and him, that's how that union works. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And this keeps them is here not like perfect sinless obedience, but the willingness to do the hard things that Jesus calls us to do, to, as it were, engage that ongoing death and that ongoing resurrection, leading to the ongoing resurrection. And that's how we come to know him. When we turn away, when we um, do what he says. So, for example, let's just make more specific. When we love in hard places, I'm mad at you. But Jesus says to love, so i got to pray and find a way to forgive. And if I make that effort to, to love the, the, the heart, the person I love love the way Jesus has loved me, as I do that work, Jesus begins to reveal himself to me because I'm keeping his command. Think about that rather than sinless, uh, keeps my commandments like we're being perfect little boys and girls. It's really on the dynamic of love here with us. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He doesn't get this. Because the idea would be if the Messiah would come, he would, everybody would see him, and then he'd separate, okay, here am I, and the world's going to be judged. So in a certain way, the way that the New Testament came down where the Jewish people really expected the Messiah to come and vindicate Israel, that is, national, historic Israel, judge all those who are doing bad, especially the Gentiles. So that in that final judgment, he'd be manifested to everyone. Instead, with the, with the cross and resurrection and ascension of the Spirit, there's an interim extended season, the age of the kingdom, where he's not revealing to everybody, but revealed only to his elect, but the world doesn't see. And so that's what is not understood by, by Judas. And, and it helps us to understand in terms of evangelism to know that we want to share Christ with people. We have to pray that they'll get the gift of sight. Because it's not a matter of convincing people, it's a matter of healing of the spiritual blindness. If anyone loves me, see it's going on in verse 23, he will keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come to make our home with him. This word here for home is the same word that Jesus is for mansion earlier in the chapter. So we'll come and, and, and live in him. That's how we manifest us to, the, to, to us and not the world. We love Jesus. We keep his commandment principally to love one another as he had loved us. Then he comes and makes us home with us and lives with us. But the world um, does not know the commandments, does not keep them, and therefore does not get Father revealed to them. He who does not love me does not keep my word. 
and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you, being present with you. But the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I have said to you. So this way of saying, like, you'll, you'll be given more understanding when the Holy Spirit comes. Right now, they're kind of like, they'll have the aha moment later on. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, peace of God is not the same as worldly peace. For these first Jewish followers, the peace of God is going to um, coexist with extreme turmoil in their most intimate relationship as faith in Jesus divided them from their families. There's a um, hymn in the hymn that you can look it up, written by Walker Percy, uh, about what's called, they cast their nets in Galilee, uh, but these peaceful fishermen, he talks about the peace of God, the last one, the peace of God, it is no peace. But strife closed in the sod, and in the closing line is the brethren pray for but one thing, the marvelous peace of God. It's the paradox that the interior peace that we have in Christ the Spirit often exists in the midst of a lot of turmoil and other levels. So the, I, the, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, not to let be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I'm going to my Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. When you see I'm gone, the Spirit comes, you'll go, oh yeah, he said that. That'll confirm the faith. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and there's nothing in me. That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Rise, let us go from here. And the, the other thing about he'll he'll say this teaching is going to be repeated a little bit um, in subsequent chapters about why it's good for him to go away because as great as it is for Jesus to hang out with his twelve intimate friends and, and followers beyond that. Um, that manner of presence with them will not be as great as the presence of the Holy Spirit with them. Hard to understand. People say, I wish I could be there and be with Jesus, but that's a temporal presence, and it's not even a saving presence yet. It's anticipatory for the Spirit, but the fact that God, that, that Jesus lives within us through the Holy Spirit, and we have eternal life, is greater than the presence of Jesus with the 12, because they don't have eternal life. 
They don't have bio, in the spiritual biology of it, the spirit has not yet come to give them. They have life because they're connected to him. So that's why it's better for him to go away. And when G, if Jesus was here, he could only ever be limited by time and space with any group of people. But because of the ascension of spirit, he can be present everywhere always. His presence, because of the ascension, because he leaves the dimension of time and space, which enables him to be present everywhere always, that's a better way of being there than being stuck here. Your thoughts? Questions about that? Good chapter. These are good chapters. Um, we are not meeting next week on the 30th. We're taking one week off, the week of Christmas. Um, staff is having a fun day. We're going to have fun. So there's no, uh, uh, so no Bible class. I, I think there is mass, though. I'll double check that. I'll send in, I'll, I'll clarify on that. Uh, and uh, we'll gather then the following week for John 15. Let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us. Be gracious unto us. Lord, lift up his countenance upon us. Give us peace this day and forever. Yeah, thank you all. Good to have you all here. Glad, glad we got you on the right channel online. See you, Michelle, Ed, Yuri, Connie, Rhonda, Lynn. Whoever's not showing the picture might be better like the name. Ruth was there. <laughs> that that scripture is the goodness of God leads us to repentance. I was mistaken. What's that? That the scripture is in Corinthians, but it's the goodness of God in, in the in the King James. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Not the love. Yeah.